Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the, the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math, see how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. You're such a great communicator, and part of this discussion is going to be about that, but this is a different sort of book. This is like looking at the history of the world through literally the lens of the history of developments in astrophysics. Correct. That's the best one-sentence, one-and-a-half-sentence descriptor of the book ever. I'm honored you could, you could have it. <laughs> Can I use it? Can I use it? Yes. By the way, it's equally as intellectually lazy to accept what someone says as true as it is to reject what someone says as false. The real scientific inquiry is about probing the information and learning and knowing how to ask questions and learning the difference between what is the baloney and what is the truth. I cannot believe we have this podcast. I'm here with Neil deGrasse Tyson. Welcome to the show. Thanks for thanks for having me. This is you're a space nut. So if I'm not in that equation, I I feel unloved. <laughs> no, I'm I'm definitely a space nut. Although I'm gonna I'm gonna get to that in a second. But first, we're we're gonna talk about your your brand new book, uh, Accessory to War: The Unspoken Alliance Between Astrophysics and the Military. And I've read it's quite, spanking brand new. Yeah. Spanking brand new. <laughs> yeah. And I've read quite a few of your books. Like I read uh, Astrophysics for People in a Hurry. I read mm-hmm. Origin. Uh, I've seen so many of your your podcasts and videos and Cosmos and all, all this stuff. So what do you what do you need me here for? Well, <laughs> that's what we're gonna figure out, <laughs> okay. aren't we? But uh, by this, the way, just so you know, not that you've asked, 
I write books so that I never have to talk about that subject again. <laughs> well, well, I just direct people to the book. Well, what's interesting, this is a different book than your other books. So oh, I'm yeah. very familiar with your oeuvre of, of books. This book is really, yeah, like Astrophysics for People in a Hurry was a gr and Origins were great ways for, for me, a space not to find different ways to understand topics that were interesting to me. The beginning of the universe, astrophysics, E equals M, all these things that you explain in such a, a great... But there's a whole chapter on E equals MC squared. It, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, you're, you're such a great communicator, and part of this discussion is going to be about that, but this is a different sort of book. This is like looking at a history of the world through literally the lens of the history of developments in astrophysics. Correct. That's the best one-sentence, one-and-a-half-sentence descriptor of the book ever. I'm honored you could, you could have it. <laughs> Can I use it? Can I use it? Yes. Uh -huh. and, and and it's different in the sense that uh, it's, it's very sophisticated, kind of you're, you're linking through, t through thousands of years and particularly through the past century of innovations from thousands of years ago. How did, how did people navigate, which, you know, how did people use compasses and then eventually, uh, you know, radio, microwaves, GPS, all, uh, and then of course, nuclear weapons. And now, the, the continual race into space and and innovations in space uh, and 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 how it both benefits the world but also benefits the military benefits astrophysics research which you know it, it, we're we're going to talk about the book but there's a couple things I want to get to first first we're in your office and I love your bookcase <laughs> <laughs> I love how there's a Whoopi Goldberg book right next to large-scale structures in the universe right below the Koran up there and books about quantum mechanics like uh it's i i it's wish good. i could live in this office for a few weeks uh -huh. and just read through the the books well plus the the shelf surface is littered with sort of memorabilia over the years it's funny anytime i have someone from la in here so you have nice props in your office. No, that's a real sextant from the 1700s. It's not a prop. <laughs> the urge is to think there's some prop house that supplied them all, um, but they're authentic. No, and it has and and it has a, a magical feel when you walk into the office, like that that telescope there behind your desk. Like what's what's that? Well, that is the precise size of my first telescope, but it's not my first telescope. But it, it brings back the memories of it. And so I think it was a 2.4 inch refractor. I think that kind of uh, emotional attachment to the objects around you, and particularly your your 50, 50 year love of space and astronomy and astrophysics, really shows. Like you can't you can't hide it. And I, and I understand. <laughs> actually, actually, I do try to hide it at home so that m the space is shared with the rest of my family and it's not dominated by the universe. So most of the weird cosmic stuff that I might put up in a man cave i don't have a man cave. i live in the city there's no room for a man cave so it's all here so my office this is, is my, man cave. This is, <laughs> the office is the man cave right, let yeah. me ask you about your, your your life at home like obviously you're so fascinated by every you know every day there's new innovations in astrophysics and, and you're probably thinking of new things for your your book or your next book or whatever and i've seen you on so many shows like when you're on colbert it's hard for stephen colbert to get a, a word in edgewise how does your wife talk about anything other than astrophysics <laughs> with you well she has, I, I know this doesn't sound like we're getting to the book but we're getting to the book <laughs> uh, she has a phd in mathematical physics so uh, our conversations are are scientifically literate and informationally efficient and informationally efficient what does that mean <laughs> it means you well when you study physics one of the things you learn and it's it's not that it's drilled into you it's that it's a fundamental part of how you think, the rewiring of your brain. 
in order to do well in physics, you look at a table, no, look at a couch, let's say. To the physicist, you're not first thinking about the cushion or the color or how, you're looking at what's supporting it. Oh, there are four legs. So there are forces at each leg. And the rear legs support a slightly higher force because that's the back of the chair. And so you get the force diagram going in your head. Now you clad that with everything else that most people care about when they buy the couch. But the physicist will strip naked a problem down to its fundamental essence of matter, motion, energy, forces, this sort of thing. So you can have a very efficient conversation with someone who is also equally fluent in that way when talking about anything. You get to the essence of the problem from the beginning. And by the way, this is continuing on this tangent that you just started. Um, uh, Richard Holbrook, who uh, worked under President Clinton and was active, he was a diplomat, was active in the negotiations in the Balkans during that right. turbulent time uh, in the 90s. He's a neighbor of this institution. And when we opened the new Rose Center for Earth and Space, uh, this is the big sphere here and the glass cube. Uh, we opened it in 2000. We, I gave him a private tour of the place. He's a neighbor. He's important. You do this for him. We go around and I point things out. And he says, hmm, if the moon is in that position for this, then wouldn't it also be this? And I said, yeah. Then we move on. I said, here's a gas cloud. Wait, wait, if that's a gas cloud and stars are made of gas, could stars have formed inside that gas cloud? Yeah. And we go around and the man knows some stuff. And so about three quarters of the way, I say, all right, so let's stop. Where, where's all this coming from? He said, all right, let me level with you. When I first went to college, I majored in physics. And only later did I switch to politics and diplomacy and the like. So then I said, did that have any effect on you in your negotiation? Oh, he said, oh, by all means. He would, wouldn't trade that background for anything. I said, in what way? He said, he walks into a room. As a physicist, you analyze what people are saying. You cut the fat and the BS, and you say, this is what they actually mean, and here's why, because the laws of physics are operating in the same room, and they apply to everyone equally. But how, okay, so how, what do you mean? Like, if Well, he didn't give a specific example, but I'm just telling you. It's, how, how can you imagine that, that, like, let's say in a conversation, or, or if you were having a negotiation with someone, I could see how maybe metaphorically laws of physics you know how how energy you moves could say for space. example they wielding a certain amount of firepower but you know what budget they were working with and you know how many people they have and you know how many scientists they have and they can make a statement that's not actually physically sensible not that it's impossible it's just not sensible so you know they're they're just puffing their feathers with that statement someone else might say oh we moved troops from here to there uh, last week, but you know that it's how many miles, and they don't have the equipment, so that can't be entirely true. Maybe they got some troops, but not in the... So you analyze in situ what people are saying and the likelihood of it being true. And it's not... By the way, it's equally as intellectually lazy to accept what someone says as true as it is to reject what someone says as false. The real scientific inquiry is about probing the information and learning and knowing how to ask questions and learning the difference between what is the what is the baloney and what is the truth and he was equipped and 
uh, had the power to do so, and he did. He was almost uniquely successful in that regard. Yeah, and, and, and I mean, now that you've got me thinking about it, I imagine the ability to go into a negotiation in a tense situation and say, what if we were to do X, Y, and Z? Like, what if we were to have the borders here and demilitarize? And then, which which might be formulated in a physics kind of way. Like, what if the universe was expanding forever and has been expanding forever? The what ifs are very important. And here's another example. This is a little bit contrived, but it very much says the point. Let's say you and I are both fighting over an orange grove, territorially, all right? Are you telling them about our fight yesterday, but go ahead. <laughs> so we're fighting over the orange grove. I want the orange. No, you want the orange. I want the orange. No, you want the oranges. So let's go to battle. And a diplomat, a good diplomat should do this, but if you're a diplomat with physics background, you would certainly do this, okay? You would say, hmm, um, what do you want to do with the orange? Huh. And you'll say... Well, I want to make juice out of it because I like orange juice. Then you turn it. What do you want to do with it? Oh, I want to, I want the oils from the orange skins so I can make orange essence for these products that I have in mind. Oh my gosh, we don't even want the same thing. You want the juice and I want the skin. So now you create a system where we both get what we want. So you're breaking, breaking down a problem into its actual components. Correct. And that's a, tr I don't mean to trivialize what could be very complex geopolitical issues, right. but that's an example of probing something to its fundamental bits, okay? What is, what's fundamentally behind this and why do you want to do it? And analyze it, bring out the information, analyze the information. Don't just say, I want it, no, you want it, no, I want it, well, we have to kill each other and whoever kills the most people wins. So, so... I'll, I'll, that's, the, that's the immaturity of conflict. I'll, I'll extend this one, this tangent one minute further, which is if you're in an argument with your wife, how do you, how do you both de-escalate knowing your physics? De-escalate. Uh, <laughs> Very good. So um, the comedian's key and peel actually parodied me uh, and my wife. Oh, I've got to look for that. But yeah, it's online. They, but they, didn't, they don't know my wife, so they just imagined. represented her, imagined her. Okay, so uh, they have me, they're portraying me, one is portraying me, one is portraying my wife. And, and the wife says, Neil, it's time to, you, you, have, you said you would dump the garbage and you haven't taken out the garbage yet. And so I reply, well, in the multiverse, there is a universe in which I have already taken out the garbage. <laughs> so that should count as part of who and what I am in my tasks. And then she goes, Oh, oh, okay. <laughs> and then I don't end up doing the task. So there's a series of these where I go, you know, cos na cosmos narrator on them, uh -huh. uh, speaking cosmic themes. And then she just sort of accepts it because you, you left looking up in space wondering what the hell I just said. Um, fact is she has a PhD in mathematical physics and there's nothing that I can say that will get by her in that regard. Um, so... Uh, how, do, how do arguments de-escalate? usually has to do with, um, did I say what I was going to do? Did I do it well enough? Did I, you know, come home on time? It's, you know, the usual marital stuff. It's not, we don't get into certain arguments that I've seen other married couples do. That, that This is true. Like Objects, uh, arguments that involve the resolution of what is objectively true are never arguments between us. So, like, what's an example? Oh, um... Uh, why did you 
I told you to leave this out. Why did you put it in the refrigerator? Well, I only put it in a couple of minutes ago. And said, no, I think you put it in an hour ago. No, you go, we check the temperature of what I put <laughs> You pull out a thermometer. That's no, great. This is like five degrees colder than air temperature. So it could not have been in there for very long. So, so you that, know you can't get away that with- That resolves it, boom. Yeah. And we're on to the next thing. It's, it's not an argument. That's good. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so obviously I want to get into so many great and interesting points about this book. It's, it's, you go further than what Eisenhower called the military industrial complex you, and, and his warnings of it in his last speech. You, you, you talk about the warnings both in the past, the present, and in the future, how astrophysics and mil the military have been so linked. We've got to be very, studying the history, we've got to be very, very careful about the future of how we link astrophysics and the military. I'll get to that in, in one more second. The one thing I, I also want to know is, You've been fascinated with astrophysics and astronomy and the cosmos since you were nine years old. Yeah, nine. Here you are. Happy birthday. You're turning Thank you. 60 in a the few days. Thank you. The big 6 yeah. And, uh... So uh, was NASA. Really? The same week. Yeah, we were born the same week. That's so funny. Yeah. And, and, you know, also what sets you apart, let's say, from the, all the other astrophysicists in the world is that you're a great and wonderful communicator. Like, astrophysics in a hurry... For people in a hurry, is for instance, and even this book, you are really and and your shows and podcasting, you're really great at explaining the most complicated things in the universe to anybody, and that's why you're probably why you're the director of the Hayden Planetarium. So my question is, you're living a, a dream life, like you're director of my favorite museum from when I was a kid. You're writing these fascinating books. Key and Peel are making fun of you and your wife. <laughs> like, what happened? You, you, you. It's like you were obsessed since you were nine and and never turned off. And somehow you learned this these skills of great communication. So, a couple of things. My field, I think, has more good communicators than most fields, most scientific fields. And I base that on the fact that we are. Our subject matter. First, the vocabulary is quite transparent. Unlike chemistry and geology and biology, we are totally into one syllable names of things. Okay. The beginning of space, time, matter, universe, big bang. That's the official name for it. It's official. almost like a marketing. It's, it's a, official. It's a, um, a region, excuse me, it's a burp. region of space you fall in and don't come out and light doesn't, black hole. Okay. That's the official name for it. Um, there are galaxies that have spiral shapes in the sky. Those are called spiral galaxies. Jupiter has a red spot on its surface. It's called Jupiter's red spot. Right. So what that means is when we speak at all, the words are not a barrier. We can focus on the idea that we're trying to communicate. Whereas if you're speaking with a biologist... So what's the, you know, I just told you what's the most important event in the universe, Big Bang. What's the important, most important molecule in the human body? Deoxyribonucleic acid. Oh, I have to abbreviate it, DNA. Well, well what is that? Now I have to ask what the word means, okay? But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to play devil's advocate for a second. If you look at your thesis on how, you know, galaxies and cosmic matter bundle together in space, there's a lot of heavy-duty mathematics that's hard to understand. There's math in it for sure, but... When I'm 
describing it to you, I, I will say, um, these objects feel each other's gravity and they move towards one another. There's, there's, if you really unpack it, in all of these books, and especially Astrophysics for People in a Hurry, which is not Astrophysics for Dummies, by the way, holding aside the fact that that title was taken, <laughs> it's not a, it's, it's real astrophysics. It's not, I don't soften anything, uh, any of the terms or ideas that are presented. But my point is, if you look through that, there are very few words that you need a glossary to understand. Very few. Uh, most of them are regular English words, and maybe the sentence is heavy. But I'm self-aware of that, and so I don't give you too many of those at once. And maybe the paragraph is heavy. I don't give you too many of those at once. Maybe the chapter feels long. No, the chapter ends, and you can see it three pages later. Yeah, and it's, a, it's a, not a huge book. And it's book. not a huge book. Right, and it's not a huge book. All that was calculated to get you through that material because you're in a hurry. But that's a good communicator. But my point is that we have communicators out there um, among our ranks. They're out there, but we're not rewarded for that professionally. Right now, I think our field has gotten to the point where we're not rewarded for it, but you're also not penalized. So now there are more of us who are doing it. Just take a look at any in the science shelves of a bookstore that has enough categories to have a science shelf. And the biggest of the science shelf, not including medicine and health, the biggest of the science shelf will be the astronomy shelf. Right. Um, we have beautiful photos. You know, everybody had a Hubble picture on their screensaver, you know, back when Hubble was cranking out the beautiful photos. So we start out with beautiful material. We start out with material everyone has thought about at some time in their life. And we've got transparent vocabulary. Now go, all right? So many of us are already there. What, what I would say I'm doing differently is I'm working in very many media. Okay, so I have a podcast that's on the radio. There's a version of that that's on television. Then I write books. So there's the book, if you're in a hurry, there's the book, if you're not in a hurry. I taught a class at Princeton that recently became a, a book. It's, it's got the weight and, and gravitas of a textbook, but it's written conversationally so that you can read it and learn the full curriculum of what went on at a Princeton astrophysics class um, and I have two co-authors, and we each took a sector of the universe. Uh, I, I had the planets. Um, Michael Strauss had galaxies, and Richard Gott had large-scale universe and relativity. And so we now have a book on that. So if that's how you want to digest your astrophysics, I got that too. And I do the news talk shows as well as the comedic talk shows. And in a couple of days, I'm, uh, Rachel Ray invited me on. So that's a food thing. And I like food, so I think about all these things. And I do a little bit of homework before I go on an interview. And I find out, my first interview with Jon Stewart when he was on The Daily Show, it was like, whoa, this is going to be tough because he's smart, he's witty, and he's got all current events in your face. And half the time, people are deer in the headlights. You looked at politicians in the early days on his show, they want to get their message across. He would ask them something different. And they, they, he, he, they, they would trip on him as he's hosting. So I said, I'm, I'm going to make sure that doesn't happen to me. So how am I going to do this? All right. And I timed it. He interrupts people about once every seven seconds for a comedic reaction. So if I'm going to speak, I need to fit my comment within seven seconds so that when he interrupts, he interrupts after a full idea has been expressed 
So now we can react to his comedic quip as well as the full idea. And I'm not saying, okay, now if I finish my point, that gets very clumsy and awkward. I studied this. I analyzed this. And so that takes time and it takes energy. And it takes uh, also, if you're talking to people who are not already science interested, people who don't know they like science or at the extreme people who know they don't like science. How do you bring science? Are they going to tune in? No. Are they going to listen to Science Friday on NPR? No. But everyone's seen Star Wars as an example. Exactly. So it's like science is, is intersects our culture exactly. in every way. Exactly. So there's a pop culture scaffold that everyone carries with them. They know what Star Wars is, even if they're not a fan of it. They've heard of Star Trek. They know other pop culture things. They've heard of Beyonce. They know who Oprah Winfrey is. They know who Donald Trump is. They know things that are pop culture. And I, this is where the rubber hits the road. If I'm speaking to you and you have no other science fluency, but you're pop culture fluent, I will find ways that science has touched the pop culture things you're interested in. If you're going to say there's a difference, that I invest time and energy in that. That is, um, it's not a crazy amount of time, but it's enough to crack that egg. And I, I think that's a formula that could probably used in many industries is, is over-prepare for who you're about to, to meet. Uh, look at how your message or vision um, translates to other media and how you would do it either artistically or through communication or otherwise. And then I think there's something to be said for the fact that you've been studying this since you were nine years old. So yeah. you can kind of talk about it on a variety. Like yeah. when, when Star Wars came out, you were probably a teenager and you are probably in your head thinking, oh, here's the physics of that, here's the physics of this. So you're, you were ready. There was no physics in Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. No, but you mentioned the lightsaber in this book. Oh, yeah, so yeah as, as a thing. As a, as a military use of astrophysics. <laughs> <laughs> but, okay, so let's let's get to this book. So you, you start off even like thousands of years ago how the study of the sky uh, helped people navigate, helped people predict... Navigate like, on Earth. Yeah. Navigate on Earth, helped Columbus... Uh, threaten Native Americans by, uh, you know, predicting that God would would move, you know, shove away Obliterate the moon. Obliterate the moon. Yeah. Right. He knew a, a total lunar eclipse was forthcoming. And he's this is fourth voyage, I think, third or fourth voyage on Hispaniola. And he needed supplies to get back safely uh, for his crew to get back to Spain. And he didn't have enough. But the locals had supplies, food supplies. But they only make exactly enough supplies to get them through the trouble times before the next harvest. So, but that didn't matter to Columbus. And he said, because they refused to give him the supplies for that reason. And he said, if you don't give me the supplies, my God will make the moon go away and make it disappear if you don't comply. And some were skeptical, rightly, but others said, oh my gosh, I think we better do. They waited. Sure enough, the night comes. The moon begins to disappear, and they freak out, and they rush and hurry, and they get their supplies. And Columbus waits till halfway through the eclipse, comes out of his cabin, and says, uh, thank you. Uh, my God is merciful. He will now return the moon to you. <laughs> so if you wanted... He was a showman. If you wanted another reason to think that, as, as I said, to think Columbus is a dick, there's your reason. So so why, why this but book? But he's exploiting... He's exploiting knowledge of the universe for political or, or in that case for for dominance over a people right who, who didn't share that knowledge well so knowledge and, is power and, and and so knowledge is power but also physics is power so let's say a war used to be fought with 
you know, who had more men on the ground. If this had more men, they would win. But physics opened the door to more advanced weaponry, obviously. Yeah. And it was no longer a question of who had more men on the ground. There was there were other who had better surveillance from space. Yes. Who had better nuclear but weapons. But it goes further had, back. So it's not just men on the ground. It's, uh, this is both physics and engineering. Whoever first rolled up the catapult in the siege of a castle, that must have been terrifying. Oh my gosh. There's energy stored in the spring action of a catapult that then can throw, hurl burning balls of, you know, this is, so weaponry is fundamental for the asymmetric advantage that a military siege might want. It, for astrophysics side of this, it's not weapons. Yes, the physicist will get you the weapon as will the engineer. The, the astrophysicist gets you information. Right, but, and, and as you point out, information uh, information that helps the military is often more important than any other kind of information. Correct. So, so you use Leonardo da Vinci as an example. He wasn't just saying, hey, let me paint a painting of you. He was saying, I could build weapons for you. And that's how he became a wealthy artist. Yes. So, and he knew, but that was the engineer in him coming out. And one of the great uh, um, s uh, people in whom there was a synthesis of science and art. Uh, and it's not an accident that art and science is a two sides of a coin. You, you might say in your life, ooh, he's got it down to a science. But on the flip side, you say, he's raised it to an art. Hmm. These are two phrases that you use almost in exactly the same situation. It's you're, you're offering high respect for the creativity of someone who's accomplishing a task that others had failed at or didn't even know was a task to engage in. So, so now, like, let's look at the last century where, I mean, and you give the whole history for a thousand years of astrophysics. It's, it's brilliant. Even if you don't know anything about astrophysics, this book explains everything, but then relates it to real world history that we've learned since yeah. high school yeah, in a very new way. Yeah. Yeah. It's and, very, it's very much a history book in that regard. Thank yeah. for, thanks for calling that out. And, and this century, it seems more obvious than ever that astrophysics could lead to our our life forever for this species or death forever for this species just because we're we're hitting certain edges of research that are you know affect us on on every level. No, if we if we die as a species, it will it will certainly be because people in power did not heed the warnings of scientists. Like you mentioned the, the quote from Einstein, uh, I don't know how World War Three will start, but World War Four will certainly be fought with sticks and stones. Correct, and that was like in the middle of the. Uh, that was spoken after Second World War. Before, you know, right? Nineteen forty-nine. I think yeah, that was. He sees the the destructive weaponry that is rising up. Even before we were deeply into the Cold War, it had begun. It, 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 uh, when was the the Iron Curtain speech? That's sort of the official uh, communist uh, boundary between the free world and the non-free world. But right. So I'm saying that if the world ends, it's not going to be because scientists ended the world. It's be going to be because politicians and the rest of us did not become the shepherds of civilization that we needed to be in the face of the power that science brings to the table. Now, now I want to make a distinction too between physics and astrophysics here. Mm -hmm. So 
when I think of the atomic bomb, I'll think physicist. of physics. Correct. But astrophysics, you, you point out um, what we have in space now, all the satellites or the potential mining It's basically of minerals. space warfare, but there's just no weapons. It's information. It's, it's like, command and control. Surveillance. I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e- it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The famous Abraham Lincoln quote says, good things come to those who wait. I wonder, did he really say that? Jay, did he really say that? Can you look that up? Regardless of who said it, that's only part of the quote. The full quote is, Good things come to those who wait, but only the things left by those who hustle. Well, if you're a business owner and want the best people on your team, the same applies. And listen, I've interviewed 1,500 people now and a lot of entrepreneurs. I can safely say the one thing consistent among all entrepreneurs and CEOs, the, the successful ones, is that it's all about the people you surround yourself. You, If you hire well, you're going to have a great business. And, you know, thankfully, ZipRecruiter puts the hustle in your hiring. So you find qualified candidates fast. This is so important. And I, I want you to try it. You could try it as a potential employer or employee. You could try it for free at ziprecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter's smart technology finds top talent for your roles right away. Immediately after you post your job, if you're hiring, ZipRecruiter's matching technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I will tell you that I signed up on ZipRecruiter as a potential employee. You know, I just wanted to see how it works. And right away, it started matching me with really amazing potential employers. So give it a try at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Let ZipRecruiter give you the hiring hustle you need. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash James to try it for free. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. I didn't know this, but you mentioned this in the book. The Hubble telescope, which looks outwards, yes. is a uh, it lo- is exactly the same satellite as these satellites called keyholes that look at the Earth. Correct. Correct. It's fundamentally the same architecture and design. and But the keyhole came first because they had the big budget and they knew it. And then we said, oh, when that gets declassified, oh, uh, 
We, well, get, get us one of those. <laughs> so we get a telescope and it looks up instead of down. So that's exactly What can the right. keyhole see? Well, or it's about keyhole. resolution. It's about resolution. So you can always, if you look down, you'll see Earth. So now uh, Hubble's resolution was, well, because it's looking out above the atmosphere. It was a fraction of an arc second. Looking back through the atmosphere, it's not as good because the atmosphere creates turbulent conditions. Um, but, you I mean, could you read a license plate? I'd have to do the math on that. Uh, a license plate at a difference of 250 miles. But the, the reality is it's only going to get better, whatever the resolution is right now. Well, except, no, no, there's actually a physical limit to the resolution of your telescope given the size of the telescope and the wavelength of light you're observing with it. There's a physical limit to that. So um, what you can do is use light of shorter wavelength that gives you higher resolution. That's why we went from regular CDs, it's regular DVDs to Blu-ray DVDs. They're using a blue laser instead of red laser. Blue has a shorter wavelength and carries more information than a red laser does. Hmm. So that's why. And they don't spell it right. They just call it B-L-U, but it's blue. <laughs> why they drop off the E? I don't know. Uh, so, so you also go into, you know, the important, like, I think there's a lot of questions in people's minds. Why do we go to the moon? Why are we interested in Mars? Uh, initially the, the, the race for the moon was more of a kind of political marketing who gets oh, yeah. there first, yeah. but, but there's, well, real, there's war too. I mean, it's not just politics it's war, but, the, and there's real reasons why we would want to get back to the moon that, you know, the mining of these rare earth minerals is an Possibly. example. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and, and the same thing for, goes for potentially getting onto an asteroid or a comet. Well, so the, you can, we can unpack your, comp, your statement in several ways. One of them is you can go to space and tap resources, but you have to ask what does that cost relative to just obtaining the resources on Earth? And it may cost much more given the cost of your launch vehicle and the time and the energy. You got to bring it back it might simply not be worth it. But it, it, it is likely that the value of space resources will be best measured by their value in other space projects. Hmm. So I'm building something in space. I need water for my crew. Oh, go lasso a comet, melt out some water, then I'll sell you the water for $9,000 a pound why? Oh, because it costs NASA $10,000 a pound to put a pound of anything into orbit, including a pound of water. So I can create a business model, just, I can create a business model distributing resources to people who need it in space. So there's that. And I've said before, the first trillionaire is going to be the person who exploits space resources. And probably that, do you think that's why you have everybody from Richard Branson, Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, and other billionaires, kind of in, not in a cold war, but almost like a Silicon Valley war for space. That's a great, uh, great uh, way to think about that. The difference is they're not, they're, they're not going to be the trillionaires because they're not thinking about space resources just yet. They're thinking about uh, tourism and plenty of money in tourism, but I'm, I don't think it's quite at the trillion dollar level, right. given the cost of that. Whereas mining asteroids, mining comets, now you're talking trillion dollars. And there are companies that are thinking about this. Space Resources is one of them. And there are a couple of others, I've forgotten the name. Startup companies that want to go to asteroids 
extract mineral resources and then distribute them to other needy places, either on orbit, on space missions, and possibly back to Earth, but that greatly increases the cost if and, you do that. Uh, yeah, for instance, uh, there's a billionaire, Naveen Jain. I forgot the name of his company, but uh, his goal is to get people to the moon, but then mine the moon so you have the energy from the rare Earth minerals to get to Mars. So his kind of a roundabout way of getting to Mars by going to the moon first and getting the energy there. Yeah, it's... Moon Express, yeah. Moon Express, yeah. That feels a little circuitous. The problem when you land one place to go to another, it takes fuel to land because, well, the moon... Well, let's back up. So why do you have these re-entry heat shields for everything coming back to Earth? Because there's the kinetic energy of its orbital speed that has to go somewhere. You can either reverse fire engines to eat that energy or you can let the atmosphere eat the energy. You dip back through the atmosphere. There's friction between the air and your surface of your craft. If it's heat shields, the heat shields will heat up and radiate and you dissipate all that kinetic energy. Then you land with parachutes. Okay. The moon has no atmosphere. If you want to slow down and land on the moon, you need fuel. If you want to take off from the moon, you need fuel. If I go to Mars, I just have to aim for where Mars will be in nine months and go. And I don't, once I break free of Earth's grip, I don't need any fuel again until I come near Mars. Hmm. And then I land on Mars. So this idea that you have way stations where you have to land, it's be way better if there were a filling station in space, you don't have to then have re-entry back down to the surface of the planet. Put, put like a, a quick mark gas station, you know, in a location between the Earth and the moon. You go there, refill, and then keep going. And then you didn't lose anything. Why would anyone want to go to Mars anyway? <laughs> Do you want to go to Mars? <laughs> um, okay, so here's what you sound like. We and your engineers, and we're in my office, we're huddled around the microphones, and I say, gee, I wonder what's outside this cave. I wonder what that mountain is or that valley. No, let's stay in the cave. There's no real reason to go to the mountain. The cave, we have cave problems. We gotta solve the cave problems first. Okay, but I could send then robots go. to Mars to do everything I can do, but better, maybe. If you do, and I could, scientifically, if it's only about science, that's correct. I could put my, I can make it so that I'll make a robot where it says, if I'm seeing out of that robot, I'm touching things through that robot. You can't, though. Not oh, as Oh, because the speed of light yeah, is... there's a time delay that makes it nearly impossible to do any good work. The Mars at its closest is 35 million miles. At its farthest, it's 120 million miles. Something like that. The time travel is uh, 20 minutes between 10 and 20 minutes, that kind of thing. So you, can, you can't, it's like, watch out for the cliff. And then, by the way, if, if Mars is 20 minutes away, you don't find out until 40 minutes, right? Uh, the, for the signal to return to you. So if you're only doing science, there's no real reason to send people. But if you are, uh, have other interests, geopolitical, touristic, otherwise economic, there it is. You could sell tickets to tourists to go to Mars. Now, the rich folks will do it. Oh, it's only 100 million and I'm a billionaire? I'm doing it. Okay, I'm poor. How do I get to Mars? You buy a lottery ticket. Easily 100 million people would spend a dollar on a lottery ticket 
And now there's the $100 million cost for the winner's trip to Mars. That's a good idea to fund a company. <laughs> you should start your own Mars company. No. So so why this book now? Like, obviously, there's many books you could have written about. Excuse me, this was 13 the... years in the making. There is no why now. <laughs> right, it's, it's like, like you were, wrote it last week. <laughs> I thought for People a second People say, well, Trump you has a space week. force. Yeah. What timing for the book? It's like, no, this book came out whenever the hell we finished it came out. But obviously, you recognize the importance of understanding right now, but to this right now, meaning this past decade, the relationship between military and astrophysics. There's so many topics. Yes, you have it's a fertile, and you it's can a fertile subject. Yes, and, and what, what and it's written almost in a different style, like because this is this is a, all your books are important. All your books have been great explanations of what you're writing about, but this tying in history and and making it such a high stakes topic the military and and the potential life and death of of the, our spe our species or society it's an important book so so what what scared you into writing this yeah it was i had some exposure in the early century early 21st century uh, i was on a commission appointed by george w bush to study the future of the american aerospace industry and i was sort of baptized into this collection of people who very powerful you know four-star generals former members of congress heads of committees uh, captains of industry but also there were it represented the political spectrum there was the heads of the aerospace machinists union right so both labor and management were represented left and right were represented academia myself and and uh, government was represented and we had a common goal, and that was to explore what the future of American aerospace industry would be like. It was on hard times. They lost half a million jobs. Suppose we lose the industry and we get our planes from Airbus or from somebody else. What impact would that have on our commerce, on our... You want me to get it? No. <laughs> <laughs> what impact would that have on our commerce, on our, our uh, transportation? or on our security. This is what we studied. And I noticed that we were, we were having rational conversations about objective truths. And we were arriving at synergistic conclusions. This is something you would never imagine would ever happen. So when, what's an example of a synergistic conclusion there? No, no, no. So what do you do about okay so here it is uh what does it mean for a company an aerospace company to send manufacturing tasks to another country okay uh, well you do that because it's a business decision that you can make it cheaper the aerospace machinist union president said uh we understand you're doing that, but we are concerned that you're taking it to sweatshops and the, con the conditions are not uh, morally right for people to work. And that this is, so one, you're taking away our jobs, but second, you are feeding into a, a exactly the kind of job situations we would outlaw in our own country. I'm just watching this conversation unfold. And then the, the, the management says, um, it is not our job, it's not our duty 
to judge whether this is a good or bad working condition for them. And in fact, many cases, they came from either no job or an actual worse job than what they have. So you can't say everybody has the union wage where they can buy two cars and have a house in the suburbs. Not all countries are in that state or, and have that. So just watching this conversation, it's smart, rational people talking about this. There's no hot air. We, and we could argue, that's fine, but there's no hot air. We're putting real facts on the table, trying to understand what the future of the industry would be. And what happens if you keep outsourcing all jobs, then we don't run, we don't own the industry anymore. And then if something really bad happens or someone takes over that country, then you don't have access to the factories that were making your products. That's, you've lost um, control over your supply chain. These are amazing conversations. And I, as an academic, are delighting in watching rational people have rational arguments. Something that you don't see much today. It's irrational people having irrational arguments. Or rational people having irrational arguments. You don't have rational people having rational arguments. So, so this, I saw this and I said, wow, this must have gone on, this kind of gathering, must have gone on in other countries throughout time. And they each would, each would have had an, sort of an astro person in the mix who could comment on navigation or what role the, you know, the, the knowledge of space things matters to your power. Even things like radar, microwaves, all these things, your GPS, all these things you list throughout the book yes. that have had such effect, that have had such good intentions for society, but necessarily, not necessarily the best of intentions in military. Well, so I'll get to that in just one moment. But th my only point is, after seeing this, I said, there must have been one of me in every one of these meetings throughout time. Hmm. I wonder if I can write a book on this, exploring what role the astrophysicists played in just these kinds of challenges throughout history. The war dimension came on because of a, uh, I was at a space symposium and right when the third, the second Gulf War kicked in and it was like, whoa, that's a highly space enabled war, heavily tapping space assets for command and control and intelligence and location establishing and the like. So now your, your other point about the, you said it, what was it? Um, just a second ago. What do you say? Jeep, radar, microwaves, mm -hmm. GPS. Yeah. No, after that. Uh, Sorry. You, you can trim this, right? Yeah, yeah. But we like all the mistakes also. Okay, you like the mistakes <laughs> This also. is the wild west. The wild, wild west. Um, but anyhow, you, the, the, uh, we, again, we're complicit, but like as we had established, we don't make the bombs. We just help you find where your target is because we're experts in when you say multi we, astrophysics. astrophysics. We're experts in multispectral imaging of dim objects over your head. Okay. This is what the military cares about. It's what they want. And so it was upon realizing that war... Oh, you were... I remember what you were saying. You were talking about the... Um, the science could be used for, for good or for evil. Mm -hmm. Well, what is the evil that you're talking about? 
And generally, in modern times, particularly people in my generation, middle baby boomers, we think of war as something evil, like Vietnam was what we cut our teeth on. And then you realize, no, there are other wars that were noble and were for a good cause. And people willingly gave of themselves to fight. When you're fighting Hitler in the Axis powers, you, you're not saying, no, I love peace and I will not do anything about Hitler. Hitler, you don't have that option. You don't have that option. And when you don't have an option, you want the best stuff out there. So I matured into the state where I will no longer judge whether if there's something that I create, whether it's good or bad that the military takes an interest in it. Well, it, it's the day it, might arise where, yeah, go ahead and use it because I'm being, we, we are being threatened by a rogue state or some uh, crazy person who has taken control of some of our resources and we need to wrestle it back. And, and sometimes these decisions, if, if one country was winning the astrophysics war, say, in terms of knowledge, that could be devastating to the other. So I'll, I'll just give you an example. The very first job offer I ever got post-college, this is 1989, I was offered a job at MIT Lincoln Labs, analyze uh, this map of space junk. So there's constantly map, we would get surveillance maps of space junk and use statistics to determine what's junk and what's a missile heading our way. There you go. So this was important stuff. There you go. Detect a signal. And there's a lot of junk out there. Analyze you know. the signal. Exactly. And this would have been the 80s, so computers were mildly fast back then, obviously much faster today. And you'd write an algorithm that could distinguish a, a, a purposeful orbiting object from a random piece of junk. Right, so you'd have to use physics to say what's not... Physics and math, yes, and modeling. What's and not going computer. according to the laws of gravity? Because space junk's just using gravity and moving around from that. No, no, but actually orbiting spacecraft are also only responding to gravity. They're, they're all ballistic. They're, no one's burning their engines to stay in orbit. Right. The, uh, what can happen with space junk is that they can be, depending on the altitude, uh, they could be responding to a decay in orbit, whereas purposeful satellites are expensive and you don't want them to orbit decay and you boost their orbit back. Space station gets its orbit boosted, you know, every six weeks or something, whatever, whatever the the the, the uh, regime is, the the sorry, whatever the the schedule is for it. The, sp the the space station has so much cross section to air particles that the air is dropping it out of orbit continuously, and it has to be boosted back up. So, if you see something with its orbit continually getting boosted, then it's not space junk. It's a it's something that somebody made and cares about. So, so I want to, again, I'm going to recommend this book, uh, Accessory to War, The Unspoken Alliance Between Astrophysics and the Military. It's such a great history. Plus, you can read it just for the astrophysics. You can read it for the history. I recommend reading it for, for both since they're, they're purposefully interwoven. Uh, I want to ask you again about your beginnings of interest in, in not only this topic, but astrophysics in general. You, you've stated at nine, you started becoming obsessed with astrophysics. Mm -hmm. By the age of 15, um, Carl Sagan wrote you a letter trying to oh, get you... Oh, 17 to, by then. 17. Yeah, yeah. Wrote you a letter trying to get you to, to go to Cornell. Yeah. Uh, uh, what did the letter say? <laughs> oh, it said, I heard 
from our admissions office that you are, have a strong interest, in, I'm paraphrasing, strong interest in the universe. Uh, if you find the occasion to visit Cornell to help you decide, I'd be delighted to meet you and give you a tour of the lab. And did he do it? it? Sincerely, did he do it? Carl. And he was already famous then, although he would get even more famous later. And so I, I called the office and the secretary answers, yes, he'd be delighted to meet with you. What day are you coming up? So I picked a day. I took the bus from New York to Cornell. And uh, I, I got out and, and I, he met me in his office. He reached behind him, didn't even look. Just reached behind him, grabbed a book. And it was one of his books. And he signed it to Neil, future astronomer. I still have that book, of course. But I just thought that was the baddest ass thing to reach behind your desk and not even look and pull out a book. And you wrote the book. So, so. Did you do that technique too? I did. No, so now <laughs> I've written enough books so that I can actually duplicate this experience for others if they come into my office. And how did he convince you? Obviously, he didn't because you went to Harvard, but did he convince you at all? Oh, so no. So here's what I did, because uh, I was a geeky kid, but I was also a geek jock. So you, you, number one wrestler in no, Bronx School of Science. No one was g giving me a wedgie, right? That's I was undefeated in wrestling, although you know New York City wrestling is a more is a softer sport than Oklahoma. <laughs> yeah, I imagine Bronx School of Science versus the High School of Performing Arts. You're probably <laughs> destroying them. <laughs> I don't know. No, so, but nonetheless, I was undefeated. Uh, whatever the measure of the competition was, I was nonetheless undefeated. And I, um, so, so, but I had nerd street cred. And how? Well, I'll tell you, just in anything. So, so you know, I carried my slide rule with me. <laughs> um, and I had a circular slide rule, which is way cool to use relative to the linear one. But here's, here's what I did. At the time, I subscribed to Scientific American. And my favorite part was the section called About the Authors. And Scientific American are popular articles written by scientists. So every article is the horse's mouth speaking about their cherished expertise. And my favorite part is About the Authors, where they listed for every author where they went to college, where they got their master's degree, and where they got their PhD, and where they were on the faculty as a stable professor. So... I went through the three years of Scientific Americans that I had subscribed to, made a list of all the astronomy and physics articles, and then of the schools I had been accepted to, I made a checklist. Did the author go there as an undergraduate, a graduate, or are they on the faculty? And when I finished that list, Harvard blew away all, other, all the competition. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize at the time half that reason is because the Smithsonian... Astrophysical Observatory is co-located with the Harvard College Observatory, and they report together for their research. So I didn't realize that at the time, but nonetheless, you're there. The Smithsonian Astrophysical Observatory is co-spatial with Harvard. So if you want access to the energy of scientific research, it was there. And so I said, I will choose to go there instead of Cornell, because suppose Carl Sagan leaves and go, mm. gets another gig in two years, or he's cherry-picked by some other institution. Then I'm at Cornell, and he's not. And the reason why I would have gone wouldn't exist anymore. And so this was, was an analysis. Was there ever a point between, during all these years where your, your formative years of studying astrophysics, was there ever a point where you were thinking, you know, this might not be the career for me? What? 
<laughs> the answer is no. I don't understand the question. <laughs> Here's an answer to that question. There were times when the learning was very hard. There were some advanced math classes I took. There was some... I wish you could get a degree in astrophysics without the math. Like, <laughs> no, I love the possible. topic, but I hate not the math. Not possible. <laughs> it ain't happening. And I felt like I will never learn this. Oh, my gosh. What, do I, what will it take? And I drew upon my lifelong energy reserves to keep going and stay with it. Like, what was the up. lowest point? It was never low. It was just... What about when you were, like, in Austin? You, you kind of had a couple of attempts at, at Oh, no, that's, that's not... That wasn't problems learning the material. That was issues with advisors and things. Mm -hmm. so I ended up transferring mm -hmm. uh, from UT Austin to uh, Columbia. Yeah, it was advisor issues, uh, and the, your PhD, you have an advisor and you have a committee, and it wasn't working out. It's, the interesting thing about graduate school is you measure not just how well you did on exams for classes, is what are your relationships with the faculty who are standing in judgment of you, and it just was not working out. They, they did not see me as their equal, ever. Hmm. And so I transferred to Columbia and everything went fine from there. Got the PhD, went to Princeton, postdoc at Princeton, was courted by the American Museum of Natural History, stayed an adjunct for a while, a visiting professor, they call it. And so that's that's how this unfolded. What, what was it like? That was a low point. It was an emotional low point. It wasn't an intellectual low point. So just some things that were just hard to get for me. And then I just worked at it harder and harder and harder. But I'm, you need energy for that so you don't become... You don't become um, you know, so you don't give up. So I have I had huge fuel tanks to draw up from being fueled up since age nine. Fuel tanks meaning because of your your the obsessive interest. Yes. Per, Do you think you need obsession for success? Yes. Yes. The most successful people in anything there ever were were obsessed. I, I'm sorry to say that, but that's just what it is. They were obsessed. And when you finally got appointed, obsessed. They think about it all the time, it, to the exclusion of personal hygiene. To the risk of domestic me. tranquility. <laughs> that also explains me. No, absence of personal... No. <laughs> genius could be a sign of the absence of personal hygiene, but the absence of personal hygiene is not a sign of genius. Ugh, you ruined my dreams. They're, they're not symmetric. <laughs> uh, when, you, when you were appointed, last question, when you were appointed head of the Hayden, director of the Hayden Planetarium, my favorite museum as a child, you visited here many times as a child, uh, was this just like, how could your dream come true? Like, could you believe what oh, was Oh, no, no, happening? it wasn't my dream. No, it wasn't. I, I, in fact, I became director because I could serve the needs of the museum and the community and the, and the like. Uh, I still have this fantasy. It's a, it could be a fantasy, but I'd rather it not be, but I'm in control of this. The fantasy is that one day, sooner rather than later, I give all of this up and I just go back to the lab and become a scientist again. Then you never see me. I kind of think you're not going to do that because <laughs> because part part of your such important important part of your ability is communication. And if you're in the uh, lab, if other people rise up, you know there's a there's a cleared field there, a field that was cleared or brush and bramble initially by Carl Sagan and others that have risen up. And I'm on that field that he cleared. Others are are fighting their way to it and are doing really good podcasts and YouTube videos of science and astronomy in particular. And I, uh, I think you, 
the day I leave, it will be the day that you don't notice that I leave. Because this, the, the landscape of others doing the same thing will be so rich that you won't miss me. Well, I honestly don't think that's going to happen for, for the reasons that A, you're too good at it. B, I would notice because I'm an avid subscriber to everything you do. But I will recommend again, this is such an important book, Accessory to War, just out by Neil deGrasse Tyson, The Unspoken Alliance Between Astrophysics and the Military. No matter what you're skill level history level understanding is of these topics it's a it's just it's a great history book it's a great beginning astrophysics book just a wonderful thing to read thank you for coming on the podcast thanks mom such <laughs> <laughs> nice things about she the did book. pay me beforehand <laughs> all right thanks for having me and then uh neil we do a quick one minute 60 second video podcast is that okay On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over, thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers.